Good morning. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 8. That's going to be our text for the day. The verses are going to also be on the screen if that will help you to, to follow along. We're looking how Jesus showed grace and truth. I am uh, convinced that if we spend time just studying Jesus, we truly understand more about God and how he wants to give us the best life. And we're going to see that in our story today. Everyone loves a comeback story. I'm not talking about just a sports team that's the underdog that is able to get the victory at the last moment. I'm talking about the struggling high school student who goes on to get her PhD. I'm talking about the man who's in prison who is able to serve his time and get out and go on to have a successful business and bless others and to be a changed person because of that. We love stories about the one who was lost the one who was down, the one who was going through difficulty, had no hope, the odds are against them, and yet they're able to come out on top and to be victorious. Their success is all the sweeter. That is the good news of Jesus. That's the life that he wants to give us all. God's grace is greater than all our sin. We sing about it, we talk about it, because the Bible is full of that message There's a story in Luke chapter 8 about a man who is living a nightmarish life. His life was completely out of control. He tortured himself. He tormented his community. But Jesus responded to this man with healing grace. And this man became an incredible, powerful testimony of God's goodness. Open your Bibles in Luke chapter 8. I want to start in verse 26. Then they sailed, talking about Jesus and his disciples. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time, he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. Now, demon possession is a complex subject. And it's one of those we don't really like to talk about because we don't know much about it. But the Bible is clear. There is a war going on. Yes, we live in a physical world, but as the Apostle Paul described, our battle is not physical. It is spiritual. Our struggle, he said, is against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And the Bible tells us that there are angels, created beings that God made, and they are, in Scripture, God's messengers. And the Bible also talks about fallen angels, demons, those who go about doing the work of the evil one. And there's this constant conflict raging for the souls of men and women. The truth is, God wants everyone to be saved, for everyone to be a completely committed follower of Jesus And yet Satan doesn't want anyone to be saved. He's doing everything he can to get in God's way. Satan and his forces are constantly trapping people. It's not always as evident as we see here in Luke chapter 8, but the spiritual truths continue to live on. Sometimes, and we read this in scripture, where the devil just gets into someone and causes them to do something. Do you remember how that's described of Judas, that Satan entered him? And caused him to uh, deny Jesus and, and betray him. Sometimes we read in scripture about supernatural insight. 
Remember in Acts chapter 16 where there was the woman, the young lady that was under the control of the, of the, of the demon. And, and because of that ability, she could see the future. And her masters were making a great fortune because of that. When you read the Gospels, demon possession seemed to be more prominent in Jesus' day, but not so prominent in other biblical eras or even in our day today. I thought about this. I've been in ministry for over 35 years. I've never seen a situation where I thought someone was demon-possessed and I could vouch that that demon was exercised. Why? Why is that? Well, Bible scholars have a lot of explanations. One is that when Jesus came to earth, Satan uh, mounted an extreme counterattack. And that's why we read so much about demon possessions during Jesus' day. He's doing everything he could to thwart the work of Jesus. And during other eras of time, it wasn't as much. Or maybe it was more diverse or more clandestine. Maybe that's an explanation. Another explanation is that we don't see as much demonic influence in the U.S. because of the strength of God's people. And that Satan is not as active because he realizes how strong the church is. Is that true? People who are missionaries in other pagan countries will tell you stories about what they believe to be demon possession even today. A third explanation is that there is a form of demon possession even today, but we don't identify it properly. We explain it as some type of mental disorder, and Satan is content for us to give it any name we wish. Ever heard the name Dr. Carl Menninger, famed psychiatrist, sometimes called the father of psychiatry? Really turned the whole world of psychiatry upside down in a good way. He said this, if, if he could convince the patients in a psychiatric hospitals that their sins were forgiven, 75% of them would walk out the next day. That's how he viewed it. Maybe we've given medical names to the conduct that's really inspired by demons. See, here's the reality. We don't know a lot about demon possession. But what we do know is what the Bible tells us what the demon did to this man in Luke chapter 8. So let's just look at our Bible and make some observations straight from the text. Well, here's the first one. He was physically deprived. Look again in verse 27. It says, for a long time he had worn no clothes. What does that mean? What does that tell us? This is not for a TV show. This is not to get attention. This tells us the nature of the depravity. This is how far gone he was. This was not being provocative. This was how the, the, the life of destitution, that's what it tells us. It also goes on to say he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. But really it's saying there is the caves because that was the tombs. That's where they buried bodies. And so he wore no clothes. He was this homeless man. And so when it came time to seeking shelter, he was so desperate, he would go into these chambers, these caves that were full of skeletons, no doubt decaying flesh. Again, that's how destitute it was, how physically deprived he was. Secondly, he was spiritually defiant. Look at verse 28 and 29. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, the Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. 
The message paraphrase says it like this. What business do you have messing with me, Jesus? That's the way we think, isn't it? See, when a person is controlled by the devil, they're not interested in spiritual matters. We understand that. In fact, they become angry and defiant when you start talking about what's right. And if you dare name the name of Jesus or talk about the church, you can just see them bristling up in that very moment. Anything but that. Well, number three, this man was despised socially. Look at verse 29 continues. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. So you get the picture here. He's not wearing any clothes. He's homeless, living in these caves. And even when the people of the air try to constrain him, he has this maniacal strength that he breaks free. Who wouldn't be scared of him? Number four, he was emotionally disturbed. Mark's gospel shares that night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. Night and day. He never sleeps. Think about what that means, what that does for someone who never sleeps. He would cut himself. He would mutilate his body. Does that help us to understand how miserable his existence was? He would cry out. How could the people in the area not be scared of him? I mean, think about what he looked like. This this naked man running in and out of caves, bleeding because of all of the self-mutilization going on. Nobody would want to go near there. You can imagine every parent saying, don't go there. Don't go there. Stay away. So get the picture here. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus and the disciples are crossing the Sea of Galilee, and they land there on the shore. All of a sudden, this wild man just seems to come out of nowhere. What do you want with me, son of the Most High God? And I love Jesus' response. He's not afraid. He doesn't step back. Look what the text tells us, verse 30 and 31. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. His name is Legion. If you've heard that name before, because you might remember, Legion was the description of a a Roman cohort of three to 6,000 soldiers. So we don't know how many demons, but obviously a lot were in this man. I think I've told some of you, maybe in my Bible class, in our, our house, we've got a detached garage, and on the back of the garage, there's some steps that go up to a storage attic. And when we had moved to our house, our daughter Emily was in middle school. And so whenever she'd need to go up to the attic like at night to get something out, she would always want someone to go with her. Because it was kind of dark back there. The creek was just beyond there, and there was a, a privet hedge and, and then a little footbridge. And she would say that Legion lived under the bridge. And she didn't want Legion to get her going up to the attic. Y'all, that was years ago. To this day, C and I will both say, hey, I'm going up to the attic. If you don't see me, if I don't come back, Legion's got me. Legion. It's a name that should strike fear in us. Can you get this picture here? But notice, Jesus was not frightened. We don't read that at all. Jesus doesn't run away from him. Jesus doesn't condemn him. We don't read anything about Jesus shirking because of of just visually how grotesque he would have looked in this state of mind. Jesus is so full of grace. 
so full of compassion. Jesus created him. Jesus asked what's his name. But he wasn't wanting to know about the man's name. He was talking about the ones who were in him to get him to say who they were. And don't miss this. The demons knew Jesus. There was no introduction. There's no name tags here. The demon comes out, he knows immediately who Jesus is and begs Jesus not to cast them into the abyss. Now, that's an interesting word. What does that mean? I looked it up. It only appears in our our New Testament just a handful of times, and it's not the word that we translate hell. We might think of it that way, but that's not really what it means here. The definition means the bottomless pit or the deep. So evidently God has some place that that he will, will send these evil spirits for a while. Because Legion knew about it, and he didn't want to go there. Look at verse 32. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. Someone said this is the first case of swine flu. (laughs) Kind of wish I hadn't said that now. (laughs) But there's so much about this. Sometimes when you read scripture, here's what happens. You come up with more questions than answers. This is one of those for me. I read this and I think, why, why would the demons want to enter the pigs? Why was that considered a a good situation? Do they think they'd be safe there? And and did the demons cause the pigs to then run down the hill into the water? Because that doesn't make sense. Because if they wanted to go to the pigs to, to have a place, why would they then die? What does that mean? Did Jesus agree to this? Because maybe it would be a way of physically demonstrating the healing that had happened, that they had left. That demon-possessed man had entered the pigs and everybody could kind of see that happening from a physical standpoint. Here's the biggest question to me. Why was everybody so upset about this? You would think everybody would be elated and amazed and thankful. Look at verse 34 and 35. When the herdsmen saw what happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. And the people went out to see what happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Why? Why were they afraid? You would think it would read, and they were elated. Or they were relieved, or they were amazed. Finally, this man that had wreaked havoc on the whole community had been healed from this demon possession. You think everybody would be for it. Everybody would be happy. Everybody think, be thinking about this poor man has finally been relieved. His family gets to take him back. It's over. He's healed. The danger was gone. But they were afraid. What were they afraid of? One author suggested this, said, were they afraid of change? You know, some people would rather just stay in the status quo, even if it's bad, because they know what to expect. Was that it? They'd gotten used to it? Or were they afraid that the miracle is temporary? Like he's been healed for now, but how long is it going to keep? You know, are they going to come back? Is that trouble going to come back? You know, even if you didn't know the name Sam Smith before the Grammys last week, you probably know him now. 
Did you hear about that? Maybe see the show? I would say Google it, but don't. But let's just say the next Columbia's First Friday, Sam Smith is there. And you talk to him. And there's actually a crowd going around because he's had a conversion experience. He's now a follower of Jesus. And you're thinking, can it be? This is amazing. Now, would you let him babysit your children? Well, maybe not quite yet. Let's give it a little bit of time. Let's just kind of see how it goes. Or maybe they were afraid of losing their money. They were pig farmers. They were herdsmen. This was their livelihood. This is how they made money. And Jesus disturbed their life. All the pigs died. Who cares? The man was cured. Who cares? The problem is over. They just lost their fortune. So they told Jesus, you need to go away. Look at verse 36 and 37. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got in the boat and returned. To me, this makes no sense. I think about this, you think if Jesus is this great miracle work, you say, well, hey, come here and help me with this, or hey, come here and help me with this. Oftentimes, that's what would happen. You remember? And the lines to see Jesus would be so long and overwhelming, it was exhausting. Not here. Jesus does this amazing miracle, and they send him away. Jesus was totally right. Jesus did what was good. He granted their request. He didn't force himself on them. Look at verse 38. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Now I want to make four practical applications. Just learn it straight from the text. We can just see here. Number one is this. Satan's goal is to enslave you. I hope you know that already. But Satan's goal is to enslave you. So don't give him a foothold. Again, there's a whole lot about demon possession that I do not understand, we do not understand, but we do know this. Satan is a cunning liar. He is the, the utmost at deceiving. Over and over and over again, our Bibles warn us, do not be deceived. He will entice you with love and liberation and fun. And in the end, just like this man, you will be enslaved. Jesus described him, remember? That he came to kill, steal, and destroy. There's an old saying that's still true. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Satan wants to do to you just like he did to this demon-possessed man. Lonely, miserable, enslaved, all kinds of passions. Look at 1 Peter 5 verse 8. We are warned, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to desire, to devour. That's what he wants to do. So avoid him. Here's the second lesson. Jesus' grace can completely liberate you. You daily seek him first. His grace can completely liberate you. James 4, 7 says, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You can't just resist the devil and he will flee. First step 
is you submit to God fully, completely, totally. You do that, then you resist the devil, and he'll flee. You may have an addiction, and Jesus can set you free. You may have so many wounds and scars from your past, and Jesus can heal you and set you free. You may have so much bitterness in your heart, and you may lash out at Christians who try to tell you about this Jesus. You might feel uncomfortable in church, but Jesus, if you really look at him in Scripture, he's so full of grace and goodness and truth. And he wants you to realize that he knows you're enslaved and he wants to set you free. He wants you to give you a good life. Look at Romans 5.20. I think this is just powerful. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Because God knew we'd need it. Remember the song, The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen could ever tell. It goes beyond the highest thought and reaches to the lowest hell. That's what we're talking about here. Look at 2 Corinthians 9 verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Mark that verse down. Think about what it's describing there. God's going to give you everything you need to do good for Him. Here's a third lesson. Some may resent your transformation, so be tolerant. Not everybody's going to be happy. We understand that from this story. And not everybody's going to be happy in your life when you change, when you're transformed. So you pardon them, you, you give them grace. You be patient with them. When this man was delivered from a horrible life, these people did not rejoice. They weren't excited. You don't see them celebrating him at all. They're telling Jesus to go away. And when your life is transformed by the grace of God, not everybody's going to like that. In fact, your spouse may say, are you going to start giving away all our money? Are you going to drag me to church now? Your friends are going to say, I like to owe you better. You were a lot more fun. You know, now, you, are, are you more holy than we are? I'm just uncomfortable. It will be tempting, but don't lash out at them. Don't be intimidated by them. Don't nag. Don't whine. Don't play the martyr. You have an incredible opportunity to show them grace, to show them Jesus, to show how Jesus makes you better, a better friend, a better co-worker, a better son, a better daughter, a better spouse, a better person. Look at 1 Peter 2, verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. So Peter is admonishing us to remember that we are swimming upstream. And we are going to look odd. We must remain vigilant. There is a battle going on for your soul. But look at the next verse. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. They may not like it, but they cannot deny when you're turning the other cheek, when you're going the second mile, when you're being the better person, down deep, they'll know it's good. And you've been touched by God above. Well, here's the last lesson. The most fertile field may be right where you are. 
So start talking about God right where you are. Tell of God's grace right where you are. The man said, I want to follow you full time. And you can imagine how, no, we can't imagine. We can't even begin to fathom what this man had been going through, the scripture says, for a long time. He's finally free, and he wants to give his full self to following Jesus. Not unlike what Jesus asked of his disciples. You remember the original 12? Leave your nets, leave your family, forsake it all, and follow me. But this time, to this man, Jesus didn't say that to him. Instead, he tells him to go back. Look again in verse 29, 39. Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus has done for him. It's not uncommon in our mind to think about a mission field as being out there somewhere. You know, a state far, far away, or maybe another country. And there's just a few people who truly have that divine call to be a missionary. And maybe there's some truth to that. But there's also a sense where every single one of us can be a missionary right where we are. And we truly see that here. This is the mission field. How powerful your testimony, your witness, your influence, the very people who saw the before can appreciate the after. The change, the transformation. Not that you've gone to a strange place and you say, well, let me tell you what I used to be. The people at your home, they know who you used to be. They know the former life. So maybe it's a husband who starts being thoughtful toward his wife. Or the wife who is affectionate to her husband. Or the student who, who tries his best instead of just being the class clown. Or the alcoholic who becomes sober. The greedy man who becomes generous. That sour and negative person that stops complaining and they become positive. All of these are powerful testimonies to the grace of God of a transformed life. Remember the woman at the well? She was anything but a missionary. She did not have the right upbringing, the right lifestyle. Remember her? Been married five times, living with a man that was not her, her husband. And Jesus told her, you go tell everyone. And she did just that. The story ends with such a key detail. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So many came to believe in Jesus because of this transformed sinner, this woman who experienced Jesus' grace. You're not saying I'm perfect. You're saying I'm following Jesus, and he's making me into a better, better person. I want to close by telling you a true story about a, sail a sailor from the 1700s. I was reading about him, born in 1725. Even though his mom taught him scriptures early in his life, he became known as the great blasphemer. How would you like that for your name? The great blasphemer. Now, sailors, we know, they've always been known as being crass, rude, crude, just violent people. He was one of the worst. He led other sailors into disbelief. One time, he was thrown overboard and rescued by being harpooned. That's how rough his life was. He was pressed into the Royal Navy to serve. He tried to desert. This depiction is where he was put, 
punished in front of the crew, stripped to his waist, tied to the grating. He received a flogging of eight dozen lashes. Later, transferred to Pegasus, a slave ship, headed to West Africa. He became a slave to the slave trader, suffered immense hardship and persecution and abuse before finally being rescued. It was on his return voyage when the ship encountered a terrible storm and the great blasphemer reached out to God. At age 39, the Lord turned his life around and for the next 43 years, he told anybody and everybody who could about Jesus. Went all over England, especially in London, rich, poor alike. He had enormous influence on William Wilberforce. Remember him? Member of Parliament who helped lead the abolition of slavery. He wrote hymns for the church. Do you, have you ever heard of this one? Faith, Review, and Expectation. You know it, but you don't know it by that title. You know it. John Newton. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Only God's grace could transform a profane, blaspheming sailor into a proclaimer of the good news of Jesus. Only the grace of God could transform that man possessed with many demons. And only the grace of God can transform you and me. That's why we love to sing about grace. That's why we love stories about grace. That's why we love to receive grace. Because it's so beautiful. It's so transforming. Jesus wants to give you His grace and His truth. And we're going to sing Amazing Grace to give you an opportunity to make a decision to receive that grace. If you're ready to confess your faith that Jesus is the Son of God, let Him make you a new creation of baptism as He takes everything that's evil and washes it away and instead fills you with His Spirit and gives you a new life. Or if we can just pray for you in your walk with the Lord, won't you come as we stand and sing to encourage you.